Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hacks on Tap. So my partner in podcasting crime, Mr. David Axelrod, is, as we say in the news biz, on assignment. Secretly means huge bender in Las Vegas. No, no. Axe has some important stuff to do, so he can't be here today. He'll be here back here next week. But in the meantime, we had to find a super hack to pinch hit for him to step in, and only one name came to mind. The great Paul Begala, CNN commentator, Clinton White House veteran, all-around Democratic super strategist, is joining us today. Paul, thanks for coming on. Murph, thank you, and uh, best wishes to Axe. He's having one of those Brazilian butt jobs, I think. Isn't that the the excuse he's using now for uh, his, uh, you know, when you look like Axe, you got to keep up appearances, okay? He's he's not on TV uh, for his brains and experience, you know, he's only there I'm for I'm under a very rigid NDA, so I have no comment, but the rumors that he's receiving Chicago Mustache Magazine Man of the Century Award are completely untrue. And, and that brings us to the whole topic of completely untrue uh, conspiracy theories and all that, because as we all knew, uh, super perv predator Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, allegedly, uh, in the jails of New York, having been prior to that on suicide watch. There's now an FBI investigation. The the interweb the kids like is awash with conspiracies that it was Mossad, CIA, the president of the United States is fanning all that, as he is prone to, uh, with complaints it's about uh, Bill Clinton and a secret plot to kill him because of a friendship the two of them had, as did Trump with Epstein back in the day. So, Paul, I noticed today you are wearing what appear to be prison guard shoes under your suit. Were you involved? What really happened? And seriously, let's talk about the mania for conspiracy theories now in American politics and what it means. Well, it is. I do think it's worse than ever. I mean, we've all lived through it in, in, in prior lives. Um, but the internet feeds it, and then uh, that's bad enough. And then, as you point out, Donald Trump feeds it. And th- there's one through line with this guy, our president, psychologically, and that's projection. Remember, no puppet, no puppet, you're the puppet, he says to Hillary. Yeah. Uh, he says Elijah Cummings is the racist. The Washington Post is actually a tool of the Kremlin. Uh, it was the Democrats who were colluding with Moscow. In other words, he loves to project. And he blames others for the things that he has done. Now, I don't think he had any role in Epstein's death at all. And I don't want to fan those conspiracy theories. The reality is Epstein was a federal prisoner in a federal prison in a federal government run by Donald Trump and William Barr. Barr being the attorney general. Barr is reacting with great anger and he says he's appalled. And I think that's good. But we need an independent investigation. The the only way to kill these kind of conspiracy theories is with sunlight and with disclosure. And the uh, I, I'm told that Barr's asking the Inspector General of the Justice Department to look into it. That's good. Uh, and then we also had a, ought to have the Congress hold hearings on this. We ought to know how this animal was able to escape justice uh, one final time. Yeah, I think it is important that we... Um we, we, the truth wins this battle regardless of the daily political back and forth. I mean, we've been lurching, and Trump's been a big part of this, into this kind of banana republic Orwellian thing where, you know, wet is dry, up is down, down is up, where facts don't matter anymore. That's the problem with conspiracy theories. Whenever you knock them down, well, the FBI proved that's not true. Huh, they're in on it, too. They're controlled by Chinese robots. So, you know, it's important just for the health of the thing that the FBI, the, the, the inspector general, reputable people get a can opener to find out exactly what happened. And I'll give you my theory. 
I saw the adroit press operators of the prison guard, the federal prison guard union, immediately start leaking out stories about how they're underfunded and somebody had to go fix a broken copy or whatever and wasn't on the monitor that day. You know, it looks to me like, shocker, there was some incompetence here. But but we need all the facts to knock down this crazy stuff. And we sure need the president to stop you know, pushing it and flaming it. But I, I think that may be a hopeless cause based on who he is. Well, that's the thing. We we used to, you know, we had the Warren Commission. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. But the Chief Justice of the United States and a variety of House and Senate members, including Gerald Ford, uh, came together to try to investigate the Kennedy assassination. That was a lifetime ago. But we don't have any institutions anymore that Donald Trump's not willing to tear down. His own FBI, his own CIA, his own Directorate of National Intelligence, and of course the free press. This feeds that. The reason that conspiracy theories are so popular in the third world is that for very good reason, people don't trust media or courts or other institutions. In America, we have free and independent courts. We have free and independent media. We have a a professional uh, FBI and intelligence system. When the president attacks those things, it, 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 it tears it down completely. And it, it, the internet feeds it, but the president could help stop it. And instead he feeds it more, he turbocharges it. I, I was just like one quick story, this is how bad it is. Last year, I was at a Washington Nationals game here in Washington uh, with my friend Al Hunt, one of the great journalists, legend. Uh, and we're at the ball game. And of course I wanted a beer. So the beer man comes by and I say, hey beer man, I'd like a beer. And he stops, he pours me a beer, but as he's pouring, he looks at me and he says, I know you, you're a Clinton guy. I said, hi, nice to meet you. He said, what's the Clinton body count? And I said, I thought he was kidding. I said, you know, tomorrow morning, it's going to be one more. We know where you live. And the guy flipped. I was joking. But even the beer guy at the ball game, like, please, just let a guy have a beer at a ball game without spinning your crazy conspiracy theories. It's that bad now. Where where people will believe anything except, you know, the more obvious truth. I would caution everybody to look at Occam's razor. The more sensible, logical explanation is almost always the true one. Yeah, no, exactly. The problem is we have this culture now of I'm right, you're evil. And if you're evil, I can believe anything about you. I can do anything about you. But then you wind up having the Michigan-Ohio game, and at the end you burn down the stadium and kill all the refs. It's not so good for college football. Um, Look, we've both been there in the room in these big campaigns where we have to knock down or deal with a – uh, a conspiracy rumor. I mean, you went through in your Clinton days the Vince Foster stuff. I remember McCain's secret family in Harlem. Um, what you know, a lot of the tactics have changed because in the old days you wouldn't give it oxygen. Then, as the media cycle went to cable and he had all that intention, you kind of had to engage with it because nothing was a secret. Now on the internet, I mean, I can tweet right now that Paul Begala just grew two heads and screamed, "I love Trotsky," and you know it would go on for a week. So what, um, what are your views on kind of how you deal with this in a campaign? I, I think what you have to do is try to disclose as much as you can if it's about you and then move on. There's going to be some percentage who believe anything and everything. And you're right. I lived through this with Vince Foster. I knew Vince. Vince took his life because he was terribly clinically depressed. Uh, and the, here's what happened. The FBI investigated and said that. The park police, because it happened in a, in a national park, uh, investigated the, and said that. The Secret Service investigated and said that. The Republican-controlled Senate, the Democratic-controlled House, we had five different investigations, all of which were independent of the, the White House, all of which said the poor guy took his own life by suicide. 
Then in rides Brett Kavanaugh, who reopens the whole thing working for Ken Starr and puts that foster family through hell for another two years. So when, when the purpose of having like an independent counsel is to avoid exactly that kind of stuff. And, and when, when people like Kavanaugh, who's now Justice Kavanaugh, get positions of power and then use it to feed and abet conspiracy theories, ultimately it hurts everybody. And ultimately it's probably going to hurt Kavanaugh. Somebody's going to spin some horrible thing about him. I guess he believes they already have. Uh, but th- that's the problem is it, that when you're in one of these things, you look to some sort of independent third party. But you're right, for the conspiracy buffs, that just makes that independent third party seem like they're in on the deal. Yeah, the key is you isolate them by flooding the zone of information like crazy for two days and change the channel. I'm, I think the Dems ought to leak tomorrow that Trump went to Roswell in the middle of the night to meet his relatives and let him deny he's ever been there. Uh, that's the new currency of politics. You kind of have to deal in all this stuff. But generally, a flood of credible information to take most of the energy away or at least give a truthful narrative to combat the crazy one. And then, as you say, the, the channel is always changing. Let's switch over to the race right now. Um, you know, Joe Biden has been interesting to me. I, I, I kind of like the guy. I mean, you know, I'm an anti-Trump Republican, so I'm, I'm trying to find a Democrat that doesn't terrify me. Um, and I, I, I like Biden. I think he's a grown-up. I've been short on him as nominee because I, I think a younger, faster candidate may beat him. But he has shown resilience. He's had a bad debate. He's had a kind of decent but not great debate. Um, you know, he, he's, he's just kind of hanging in there. But this week, I can tell the D.C. conventional wisdom machine, which I know you're fond of, like I am, uh, is starting to, to hammer him again based on a couple of gaffes. So let's listen to a little tape and talk about uh, Joe Biden, where we think that campaign is and where it might be going. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. We got to let them know who we are. We choose unity over division. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts. So, of course, the, uh, the Wolverines of the TikTok media are all over that. Is it a sign that Biden doesn't have the fastball anymore, or do you think he's having the front-runner beatdown of just being in the spotlight where every malaprop that in the old days would have given you a nightclub comic career like Norm Crosby um, is, is now a fatal flaw? What's your take? Well, that's the same Joe that we saw bouncing around Iowa in 1988, 30 years ago, the first time he ran for president. That's who he is. My advice, I don't have a candidate yet. I really don't. Uh, I'm a little like you. I, I'm a single issue voter. Deliver me from Donald Trump and I will deliver you my vote. That's it. You don't have to have the best health care plan. You don't have to have the best climate plan. You don't have to have the best hair or the best elocution. Just beat Trump. That's Joe's ace in the hole right now. And, and if I were him, if I were working for him, I would lean into it. You know, I'm a guy who wrote a book about Bush called, George W. Bush, called Is Our Children Learning? The Case Against George W. Bush. He gave me the quote in a speech. Those malaprops by Bush didn't hurt him. In fact, he was adroit enough to make them an advantage. He basically said to voters, as he said, yeah, I mangle a few syllables. He basically said, you know what? I'm too stupid to lie. I'm just going to tell it like it is, even if I mangle it. I think Joe, who's not at all stupid, he ought to lean into that. He ought to say, look, sometimes my heart gets ahead of my mouth, and my mouth goes pretty fast. But you know where my heart is, and it's with you. And lean into that stuff. I don't think it hurts him a lick that he said. I think it's pretty funny. We choose truth over fact. Um, But if he seems defensive, if he seems hesitant, 
if his, uh, the women and men advising him are in his ear every day saying, don't screw up, don't screw up. You know, that's like, go send a kid in a Little League game up to bat and say, hey, Johnny, don't strike out. Yeah. <laughs> See exactly what Johnny's going to do. No, I, I look, I agree. Campaigns, as you know, anybody who's really done it knows are an amplifier. So you find the best true parts about your person and you blow them up big and, and try to frame them in a way that fits what the electorate is looking for. You know, that, that strategery got George W. Bush to the White House twice. He was who he was. And I think Biden ought to learn that. One thing they do is they tend to hide Joe because they're afraid of it. I, I think they ought to lift the curtain and let him engage. He was very good, all heart, all Biden, the best Biden you're going to get in those interviews after the uh, tragic shootings in El Paso and Dayton. So, you know, let, let Biden be Biden because he, he's, he's in his 70s. He's unchangeable. I do think the great risk they run and trying to hide him doesn't solve this, which is – Biden, as you say, Biden's big strength now, besides name ID, and he's kind of venerable, and there's some goodwill for him in the party, so he's hanging on to a third of the vote there, his third. His strength is the guy who is going to go beat Donald Trump, is going to slay the dragon. And if they hide it and act like it's the worst kryptonite in the world, since there are going to be more of these gaffes, it's going to chip away at the idea that Biden is this, you know— big puncher who's going to go and easily beat Trump. It's going to add risk to the equation. And then he's no different from the other risky general election candidates who might be younger and snappier, be it an Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or somebody else. So I think let Biden be Biden and roll the dice, or they're going to have a long campaign of these kind of stories. I mean, what one thing would you tell them to do uh, to kind of tilt into this, to make make a meal out of it rather than than be so kind of uh, defensive? Well, I, I would do what you're doing. I, in other words, I, I saw that interview with Anderson Cooper, and full disclosure, I work for CNN. It was terrific because it was all heart. And that's in addition to I'm the guy who can beat Trump. What Democrats love about Biden is that he's all heart, that his heart is true. And so I would lean into that. I would objectify these gaffes. I'd make them a thing and, and use them as a sign of his authenticity. Uh, better a gaffe than a lie. You know, yeah, I'll get some of this stuff wrong, but I'm never going to look you in the eye and say that neo-Nazis are very fine people. Joe famously said about Rudy Giuliani, his idea of a sentence is a noun, a verb, and 9-11. Joe's idea of a sentence ought to be a noun, a verb, and I can beat Trump. Everything has to be about why I can beat Trump because that's his calling card. Now, he needs to know. I hope he does. This is all just a shakedown cruise. The notion that Joe Biden is going to run the table or win Iowa by 30 points or something is insane. He's going to stumble. The question is, will it be a stumble or a fall? Will he collapse? Does he have a glass jaw? He's going to go down. He's going to be behind. And he better be ready for that psychologically, and his team better be ready. But this thing is still in the very, very early stages. I was at the debate. I saw most all the candidates. My prop that I showed them was a clip from CBS 31 days before the Iowa caucuses of 2004. 31 days. And the headline said, Dean has commanding lead. He was, Dean was in first. Wes Clark was in second. Joe Lieberman was in third. Dick Gephardt was in fourth. Al Sharpton was in fifth. John Kerry was behind Al Sharpton. And 31 days later, he won with 37%. So this is going to change fundamentally in lots of ways. No, I just keep beating the drum that the national polling can be so overrated. The old Milk Wurtzman rule, wait till the first contest, it'll drive a lot of it. And the Iowa caucus, as you say, is very logarithmatic. Boy, it is. It is. And he just, I, I wish all these gals and guys well. I honestly don't have a favorite. But 
this is a difference between hacks like me and then the pundits uh, uh, who've never done it. Pundits would be the worst weather people in the world because they believe tomorrow <laughs> will be just like today, only more so. Right. Right. So 4th of July was hot as hell. Oh, my God, Christmas, it'll be 200 degrees. You know, well, we it's know also that- the nature of the business that every day it appears a deadly hurricane is approaching. You know, every bit of trivia is treated as huge news in the battle for clicks and ratings, but the fundamental stuff moves a little slower. I would give a big award to any cable TV journalist who would say, today in the campaign, absolutely nothing happened. We'll be back in two minutes. Um, Because sometimes that's the truth. I I just want to echo a point you made on Biden, and then uh, we're going to bring our our guest hack in to uh, continue the discussion with us. But one thing I've learned in, in, in doing this is sometimes when you, when you have an indelible candidate who has a certain image, trying to change them is a waste of time. But trying to fit the job description to them by defining the job description can work. I was working for this great guy in Canada, probably under an assumed name back then, running for premier of Ontario. And he was the uh, premier. He'd done a lot of tough stuff. We'd had a big teacher strike, and there'd been all these controversies. But the economy had come back under him. He was perceived as kind of a tough, unfeeling guy. The opponent uh, was was running the Toronto Food Bank, the nicest guy in town. So it was funny. Some of the local guys were saying, well, we got to buy him a cardigan and rent a toddler. You know, I care about this little nipper. Um, and instead, we, we, we did the right race. We defined the job. The toughest job in Canada needs the toughest guy in town. And it fit, and he won from behind. So Biden's who Biden is, and they would, they would profit by, I think, fire Trump, get a heart in the White House for a change because he is the heart guy. You know, Mayor Pete's the brain, he's the heart, and, and Warren is the righteous uh, revenge. So there's space for him there if they're commit to it. Absolutely. And, and that's, I think, the, the key is I love this notion of redefining the job. Uh, and I know it's not enough to be anti-Trump, but our buddy Axelrod taught me that when we fire a president, it's because we want the remedy, not the replica. Right. Lots of these Democrats are toying around with that. Cory uh, uh, Booker had quite a good speech where he was trying to show that he was the opposite of, of Trump. Uh, some of the others. But that that's, I think, the key to this. I'm not sure exactly where Democrats are in terms of, of what they believe the remedy to Trump is, which is probably something we ought to ask Jen Paul Mary. But we're going to go to Jennifer. But first, we have a couple of bills to pay around here. So let's do a little commerce. So I was in an office the other day, and the place was loaded with employee perks. I mean, snacks galore, about 28 different kinds of hipster-flavored water. I mean, I'm lucky I brought my duffel bag and was able to boost a whole bunch of it. But I'll tell you, one thing employers aren't always so generous with is workplace life insurance. That's where policy genius comes in. Not policy idiot. No, we're talking policy genius because policy genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the right amount of coverage at the best possible price. I say let the free market work. Let them compete right there on policy genius. And also, policy genius can help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance. So here's the call to action, as we say in the paying the bills business. Remember, workplace life insurance policies are like workplace snacks. Better than nothing, but not quite enough. Head to policygenius.com today and find out how to supplement your workplace life insurance and better protect your family. Policy Genius, it's a buffet of life insurance. And what could be more delicious than that? Policygenius.com. All right, here we are. We are lucky to have a special guest hack. And in our world, that is a huge honorific because it means somebody who's been inside politics and actually 
done it, not just opined about it. Jennifer Palmieri has done it all. She has been President Barack Obama's White House Communications Director. She's been a top campaign aide to Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. And she was a former National Press Secretary for the DNC. But most of all, recently, she is the author of the filthy adult novel, Banned in Five Cities. Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who run the world. Actually, it's a New York Times bestseller, available on Amazon or at your local bookseller. And I highly recommend it, particularly now it's back to school season, uh, for the, the young minds in your life. It is a great read and a thoughtful book. Jen, thank you so much for joining Bagala and I here on Hacks on Tap. Super happy to be here. So we are gabbing away about the presidential race. We've talked a little bit about Joe's resiliency and his his challenges. Let's talk about the rest of the field. I mean, clearly Warren is the candidate over the last 10 months who's kind of brick by brick risen with a lot of strength. What's your take on the non-Biden candidates right now? Who do you think is going up, down, and what should we be looking for? Yeah, I agree that, I mean, first of all, I would say about Biden is he has proven to be very resilient and um, perhaps, and that the polls have shown voters have been more forgiving than I thought maybe they they might be. Um, but I'm not, I don't consider that proposition to be really tested until we get into the fall, right? I mean, it's, yeah. even in Iowa, people don't really start paying attention until, um, until the fall. So I feel like that'll get, that'll get, that will really get tested now. And, um, for the, I mean, Warren, you got to say she came in to the race where people were, um, already, um, saying that, you know, she was going to have trouble because of the Pocahontas issue. And turns out, you know, she, uh, I don't feel like she handled that so great at the front end. And what's interesting about her is she learns, right? I feel like she didn't handle that great. She learned from that mistake and she moved on and she built a campaign um, focused on issues when people said that that wasn't going to matter and she knew that was the right thing for her. And she has built a very formidable, um, a very formidable campaign. So I feel like that seems real. That seems sustainable. She's got money. She's not going to, she doesn't make mistakes. She's not going to all of and become a bad candidate, right? So I think you can count on her being solid. Um, I think you can count on Kamala Harris continuing to be a big force um, as well, and certainly Bernie. Bernie has, you know, his supports dropped um, quite a bit because his supporters from 16 had other choices, and some people chose to go elsewhere. But he still has hardcore um, support uh, that probably um, will always stay with him, and he will always have money. Um, the thing with, you know, the, the like different ways this could spin off and go in different directions. Uh, Biden could start to have trouble and then people will start looking for a Biden alternative, if you will. Um, and I'm not sure that uh, Warren Sanders or Harris really fit that bill, right? Um, they're um, uh, particularly, uh, obviously, Warren and Sanders seen far to the, uh, much more to the left of, of Biden. Um and there could be a moment if Biden starts to not do well, Warren surges, and I could see a concern in the party emerging where they say, whoa, that, um, uh, you know, she's a little to the left and we should look for another uh, mainstream um, moderate um, alternative. And then, um, you know, my concern then is the debate rules and how that changes the field and what options are going to be uh, left for people um, at that point. Mm-hmm. Paul, what's your take on the kind of the remainder of the field? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, Jen. I think you know this uh, very well. I'm terribly interested, though, to ask the author of Madam President, uh, what do you think about a field where in Iowa now two of the top three candidates for the Democrats are women, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris? Uh, it seems to me, I think you're right. You've described their appeal uh, very well. Um, Amy Klobuchar is a weak third. Kirsten Gillibrand is even three uh, percent, rather, and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York, is even weaker, two percent. Tulsi Gabbard's at one, and Marianne Williamson, the author, is at less than one. Uh, those are some pretty impressive, pretty talented women with a whole variety of talents. So it's interesting that Warren is at nineteen, and and Gillibrand, for example, who I think is running a more sort of overtly feminist message. Uh, is only at two. Why is Warren succeeding and, and Jill Brand <laughs> floundering? Yeah, because gender biased isn't gender biased, right? <laughs> Just because a um, you know a a woman um, running a outwardly um, feminist campaign that focuses on the fact that she's going to be the first woman president isn't necessarily um, uh, something that is going to appeal to women. And I think, you know, Klobuchar is a very good candidate and she could, she's somebody that if Biden doesn't do well, um, if people don't have faith in him, she's somebody who could emerge as a, as a good alternative to him. And, you know, uh, Klobuchar similar to Warren in terms of being a workhorse, putting in, um, a lot of, putting in a lot of effort, but also, um, has a been a long record to fall back on of what she's been able to do in a you know pretty tough state. Minnesota is not the easiest state um, to win, and uh, you know she, I, you know I think that's what her appeal is. And running, um, uh, and you know Gillibrand just has a different um, a different background, and she's got and she's got a different message. And I think in this big of a field, it hasn't. You know, it hasn't broken through as something that voters see reflected in themselves. And, you know, you all both know that voters got to be able to relate to your message in a very um, in a very personal way. And but the thing with Gillibrand, you can't ever quite count her out because she is so ferocious. (laughs) She doesn't give up. She stays at it. She keeps coming back. Um, She's probably not going to make the September debate, but she's got, um, but she could probably make it in October. The same standards um, apply. Um, and I thought she did well in that last debate. You know, she um, she had good moments. It's uh, tough to, you know, it's tough to break through, but I don't quite ever think you can, you can count around, although it doesn't surprise me that, um, you know, there's not huge amounts of the, of the population that wants to, uh, that's backing that kind of message at this point. Yeah, I think Elizabeth Warren should get a special prize because CW in D.C. was so low on her, but she understood the primary voters and put together kind of a, a 360-degree message, you know, for things they're interested in. She's a fighter. They want to fight her. She's good at being that. She has a clear progressive economic message. There's clearly a huge market for that. The more committed to it, the better. 
And third, she is in the identity sweepstakes. You know, she's not an old white guy. So she's not monodimensional in her appeal. She's kind of playing all quadrants there, at least three of the quadrants. And uh, that has helped her. I think in a lot of ways this race is going to boil down to Warren versus somebody. Can Joe still be the somebody or be one of the others? And as you said, Jen, the big broom is coming for that debate. And if you're a Gillibrand or somebody like that, even if theoretically you can be in a later debate, no debate, no money. Because uh, no debate, no polls, no money. So you, you can get suffocated plenty style. So so we'll see. Amy's problem is she won't – she doesn't like conflict. So she's nice. She's done great in a tough state. If they nominate her, I think she'd be a good general election candidate. But she hasn't seemed to find a way to take a grip uh, at the uh, at, at the nomination race with a thing to break through. And, again, the clock's ticking. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. What about Mayor Pete and, and Corey? They both seem like natural talents on TV – did well in the debate stage. What's the path for them, and what would you do if you were advising them, Jen? So, Corey, I felt, did Corey, I, you know, um, I, I uh, <laughs> about, I don't know, a week or so, about for that second debate, I texted my friend who's senior advisor to Corey, and I was like, I feel like a little Corey Boomlet coming. So I have a record of it. Um, they texted, I heard from his team today, they're like, you were you you predicted a Paul Mary. It's like, I just felt it, I just, weird, it's weird, I just felt it coming. I just felt like Corey's, um, you know, Corey's got such a positive message. He's so full of love. It's so true to him. And it's just like at that point where the race has been going on for six or seven months, and people might just want that. Um, also, Booker has gotten really good. Um, he has, uh, you know, he's somebody who's like learned on the trail and he's very good at delivering a message that's constantly reinforcing itself, right? So any question that he gets, he's using as an opportunity to tell you a few things about himself and that's the sign of a good candidate. And I think, you know, he hasn't, that hasn't popped in the polls yet, but it's, and I know people are tired of hearing how early it is, but it really is so early. So I feel that um, Booker could have a really strong fall. Like this is when, you know, this is when it all happens. Remember, um, uh, all of us, all three of us are old enough to remember 2003 when John Kerry, we all thought in September of John, that of 2003 that John Kerry was going to have to drop out and he became the nominee. Um, you know, in 2007, in August of 2007, nobody thought, except for the people who worked for him, that Barack Obama was going to be the nominee. Um, Paul was there in 92. Um, Y'all hadn't even started the race yet. So, you know, it's the fall that 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 uh, real is where the race really takes shape, yeah, yeah. and it's not until December that you really know what Iowa is going to do, right? I couldn't agree more. The big thing that people who've done this know is how late Iowa really moves. Uh, let, let, let's get to our wrap-up question now, if we can. I'll start with you, Paul, and then Jennifer. You can close us out. As Democrats, um, what worries you the most? What makes you? Uh, stay up at night worrying about your party and potential outcomes vis-a-vis the presidential election. Paul, you go first. Well, that, that, that as Carvel says, Trump can't win, but we can sure lose. That, that somehow we're going to make ourselves, our party, and our nominee unacceptable to those people in Trump districts, 33 of them, which Democrats just carried in the, in the House uh, midterm elections, by going off a cliff. 
Uh, this thing is a bird's nest on the ground. The Democrats have to reach down and pick it up, but they have to give them somebody who's acceptable. When I watch that debate, Jen, you probably spent more time in the White House than FDR between the Clinton administration and Obama administration. <laughs> and my question would have been, what I the could've... hell country do you think you're running in? Barack Obama is so much more talented than anybody standing on that stage, and he could get Obamacare through by one vote when he had 60 senators. You're standing there now telling me how you're going to have a single-payer weed and free uh, education in the uh, on the Martian uh, uh, spaceship. What the hell, people? All you got to do is give me somebody who's acceptable to so many of these people who voted for Donald Trump but now regret it. I, I, that's what I'm worried about, that we're going to piss this thing away. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, that... I mean, that is my... And I do, quite literally, Murphy, stay up at night worrying about it. It's that we are, we are going to nominate someone that cannot appeal to people... Uh, to some segment of people who voted for Donald Trump, and I may be unique in Democrat uh, as a de- as a Democratic you know consultant type, in that I spent a lot of time in Trump country. I got people in my own family that voted for him. I'm in Mitchell, South Dakota, right now, <laughs> as we speak. Oh, go and to the corn I'm palace. You, there are people- Tell everybody I said hi. I've been there. <laughs> Me too. I love Mitchell. Um, I'm telling you, there are people who will switch. They will leave Donald Trump. They um, and are willing to vote for a Democrat. Um, but not if it's not if not if it's someone um, you know not if it's someone who has you know some, that has views that they consider to be like way outside of the mainstream and so that is that's my big concern. Yeah, I think this is one thing. Will they give President Trump tools, or will they will they let the country will they get out of the way and let the country do what it wants? I do have some uh, interesting news. I just got a flash email from the Marianne Williamson campaign. They've got a new poll they're very proud of. The good news for them is she is allegedly at 21% of the vote. The bad news of the poll is on Jupiter. So with that, good luck, <laughs> Democrats, I guess. Don't nominate a socialist or some Republicans like me who would like to vote against Trump. And Jen Palmerian, thanks for joining us on the interview here at Hacks on Tap. Thanks. Good to talk to you both. So we're getting a couple of bills piling up here at the office while Axe is on his secret assignment. Now, I don't know what the hell he needs a snowmobile, a tuxedo, and a crossbow for, but hey, we don't ask questions, we pay the bills, which is why I've got a word now from one of our sponsors, the great, the imperial stamps.com. Look, it's a hassle to go to the post office. You got to park, you got to trudge your way in there. I personally have trouble getting the wheelbarrow through the front door with all the stuff I want to mail. It just takes a lot of time. That's the great thing about stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small business. Stamps.com eliminates the trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. Think of that, convenience and special discounts. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices or you're an online seller or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle all of it with ease. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier, drop it in the mailbox. It is that simple. 
With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and, get this, up to 40% off priority mail, a fraction of the cost of those expensive, complicated postage meters. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. I mean, think about that. That's like the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus rolled into one. Stamps.com could take over the world because it's a good deal. Check it out at Stamps.com. All right, we have our mailbag. Interesting questions you send us at hacksontap at gmail.com. We love getting these, so please keep them coming. The secret mailbag address is hacksontap at gmail.com. So the first question I'm going to ask Paul Begala. This is from Mike. What a terrific name. What are your thoughts on Julian Castro's brother posting names of maxed out Trump donors in El Paso, publicly posting them? Not only his brother, but of course, a senior campaign member. Do you think Castro should drop out? On the one hand, the information is public and accessible. On the other, shouldn't we expect more from a presidential candidate in this climate, particularly from any Dem running in part on Trump's indecency? In my mind, Mike says, it's disqualifying. What do you think, Paul? Well, uh, Mike, the writer, but also Murph, uh, I don't like it. I have to admit, it is public information, and uh, I think the sunlight's the best disinfectant. I understand that. I think there's something that invites harassment. When Joaquin Castro himself is a congressman, his his brother was the mayor of San Antonio, the housing secretary, now a candidate for president. I do think uh, Democrats, I think human beings, ought to be better than Donald Trump. And when when Trump sends out these tweets that invite harassment of all manner of people, beginning with Rosie O'Donnell and concluding, I guess, like this morning with the housemaid that woke him up, I don't know, he he degrades us all. And I understand that reciprocity runs deep in the human soul. I understand people want to respond in kind. I just think as a Democrat who's undecided, I don't think it's disqualifying. I don't think he should get out of the race. I think Mike is overreacting on that. But I do think he makes a good point. I think a lot of Democrats don't like answering in kind. I think what they want is to answer by being more kind. And uh, the truth is the way to beat Trump is to persuade people who have been for him to leave him. You know, this was one of the great lessons Clinton taught me. He used to always uh, uh, quote Abraham Lincoln, who said, I destroy my enemies. I make them my friends. Uh, and I understand people want to hate on Trump supporters, Trump donors. That's no way to win. If you really, really want to get rid of Trump, persuade the people who are for him that he has conned them and hurt them and betrayed them, and they ought to come over to the other side. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think he should drop out or anything like that. But I, do we have to weaponize everything in politics? Um, you know, donations are in their own way speech. People have a right to do them. Uh, I, I thought it was way too far, uh, way too much. And, and you know, I agree with you that if you want to beat Trump, attacking people who support him as evil villains, back to this equation of I'm right, you're evil, is not the way. And I think that's one of the big temptations in a wider way for the Democrats that they'd be well advised to avoid, which is you can vilify Trump voters all you want, but if you don't get some of them, you're going to lose the race. And uh, I think there's a lesson here. This is a year for pragmatism on the Democratic part, or they're going to have a a, a great moment of moral hubris, and they're going to have four more years of President Trump. All right, next uh, letter from the mailbag. This is for you, Murph. Uh, I love these sort of historical fantasy leagues, right? Could George Washington have struck out Abraham Lincoln? (laughs) Here's one that, that James writes. Murph. If Barack Obama were the Democratic candidate, could he beat Trump? 
Oh, good question. And you're right. It's one of these historical – reminds me of the old Star Trek gag where they'd uh, – they do the riff where, well, the greatest wars in the history of the human race, the Napoleonic Wars, the Second World War, the Gene Wars of Zorgon Five. You know, <laughs> so um, I, uh, yes, I think he could. Uh, my view, and I was wrong last time, uh, right about the popular vote, but that wasn't enough, and maybe we'll get the same distribution of the Electoral College. We'll see. But if you mark this to market, as the Wall Street folks say, which is what it's worth today, in our business, that's Election Day. The Republicans have done anywhere from pretty bad to awful in every election since Trump was elected president in almost every place. We've lost a lot of seats. We should win. People are trying to punish the Republicans. They're trying to fire Trump. So if the Democrats had a candidate who could get out of the way and let them do that and not give Trump anything to work with, either ideologically or style or record, um, they're going to fire him. And I believe Barack Obama, because he's popular in the country, and I have my own criticisms of him as a conservative. I can go on. It's a whole other podcast. But fundamentally, a Democrat like that, who would be non-dramatic, and therefore there wouldn't be much for Trump to work with, although it would be a very boring race because it would all be relitigation. I think the country would go ahead and do what they're telling us in elections and polling. They'd fire Trump. So, yes, I believe the time machine Barack Obama, if he could travel to the future uh, and not have already been president, would indeed beat Donald Trump. But, you know, we'll never know. Now, a viewer, Alex, who that's a familiar-sounding name from Los Angeles. I think this might be a famous TV journalist. He asked us, in the last podcast, you both, meaning Axe and I, discussed Mayor Pete and said he hasn't chosen a lane or picked a fight with anyone on stage. What should be his lane? Who should he engage with? What do you think, Paul? Uh, I think he needs to be the remainder man if and when Biden stumbles. Uh, he's, he's, you got to be who you are. And he is this really wonderful combination of a big brain and a combat veteran um, and a Midwesterner from the heart of the heartland and a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, he's got a lot in that toolkit, um, but I don't think he's going to be plausible trying to out Bernie Bernie. Uh, I think his lane, if you're going to pick it that way, is much more with the kind of pragmatic uh, he's, he's got executive experience. He's somewhat more moderate. I mean, right now in the, in the Democratic Party, you know, Leon Trotsky would be a sellout to some of these folks at the base of my party. Uh, but so he's, yeah, he's, he's for universal health care. He's for sensible criminal justice reform and border reform. He's not as far left as some. He's never going to be able to compete out there. Uh, if, if in fact, not if, when, again, we said this earlier, when Biden stumbles, and he will, who will be there to pick up the pieces? Or will Biden just swoop back up and, and write himself? And that will be the challenge. And I think he does have to, the, the most important thing, if I, if I actually saw Pete and I saw his campaign folks in Detroit at the debate, which by the way, I love your hometown, Murph, love it. I saw Mayor Pete out there, I saw his campaign guys. And of course, as a Democrat, I couldn't help it. The first thing I said is, you gotta get African-American supporter. You can't be the Democratic nominee, man. You gotta get right with people of color. And that's where Joe has been so strong. And I would go, I know everybody wants to win Iowa. I know he does. I would also, I'd spend all the time I'm not in Iowa, I would be in South Carolina talking to African-Americans there who ought to have the, the most important role in picking the nominee. I mean, the heart of the Republican Party, as I understand it, Murph, white Christian evangelicals. So they're not the majority, but they're the heart. The heart of the Democratic Party is people of color. And I love my fellow white liberals, but they're a pain in the ass. It's people of color who should and I think will pick the Democratic nominee. And if I'm Mayor Pete, I would go after them and challenge Joe Biden in that community. 
Let's wrap up the mailbag with one more plug for the email address. Send us your thoughts, comments about the show, and any question you have. We read them all. We can only get to two or three an episode, but keep sending them. The address is hacksontap at gmail.com. Paul Begala, it's last call. What do you got? I got an answer for why the Democratic candidates for president have gone off the deep end on the far left. Uh, and it's not because that's where the Democrats are. 54% of Democrats in a Gallup poll said they want their party to be more moderate, not more conservative. The, the electorate just uh, chose a bunch of moderate Democrats to take over the House in Trump district. So they have a strategy. And why are they abandoning it? Turns out the law of unintended consequences rears its ugly head. When the Democratic Party uh, attached access to debates to not only polling but to fundraising. How many small donors have you gotten? That empowered small donors. I thought it was great. It was wonderful. The unintended consequence of that is that small donors tend to be some of the most ideological people in my party, some of the most committed people, and they're great. But to get a dollar or $5 from a small donor, it turns out, you have to send them an email or go viral on a video with something pretty darned extreme. And that's what's pulling them extreme. So what's the solution? I'd add one more metric. Yeah, it's good to be at 2% in the polls. Yeah, it's good to have small donors. I still think that's a, a positive reform. But to negate the unintended consequences of pulling so far to the left, I would add the third metric, register voters. If the Democratic Party should stand for anything, it ought to be for full participation in the democracy. My God, John Lewis, my hero, nearly lost his life for the proposition that people should be able to vote. Democrats should say, if you register 25,000 voters between now and September, you're in the debate. And I don't even care where they are. And the thing about that is it's good for democracy. It's good for the Democratic Party. And it doesn't pull you to the left or the right or the center. You register voters just by appealing to their civic responsibility and their patriotism. Not because you have the best 14-point plan on the snail darter. So I'm very interested in seeing the Democrats course correct here by emphasizing something that ought to be at central of their DNA, which is voter registration even more than low-dollar fundraising. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the incentives are kind of screwed up, and it's a unifying message to talk about something that's more communitarian like that than just, again, my three-and-a-half-point plan because the other candidate has a 4.2-point plan. Uh, my last call point is more free advice for the Democrats, so uh, take it with warning. But if I were running a Democratic campaign right now, I would declare Beat Trump Week, and I would exclusively campaign in three places that have nothing to do with the Democratic primaries, merely to hang a lantern on it for the media to show that my candidacy gets the fact that getting liberals to be really excited about voting doesn't win an election when what you need are more votes. I would go to the PLM counties, Pasco, Florida, north of Tampa, Luzerne County, that's Wilkes-Barre and uh, Scranton area in Pennsylvania, and Macomb County, north of my revolutionary cradle of Detroit. Those are all counties where Trump dramatically overperformed. And I would get on the ground there. i show I could relate to voters there. I would show I could listen to voters there because I might not hear so much about Green New Deals, but I would hear a lot about the cost of prescription drugs, worries about taking away uh, private health insurance, and concerns about whether or not wages are growing enough to keep a family in the American middle class. That is where the election is going to be won or lost. Democrats don't have to win those counties, but they can't get slaughtered in them by Donald Trump like last time. I would launch an offensive with my candidate and show the media – 
that uh, our candidacy understands the general election and the stakes, not just an auction to the left uh, in the most liberal precincts near the University of Iowa. I think it would be an interesting way to stand out a little and send a message that your candidacy gets it rather than, again, just being one of uh, 29 and a half or how many candidates there still are. So that's the free advice of the week. I'm sure it will be ignored. I hope not. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Like quick data point, Luzerne County, which you mentioned in Pennsylvania, it's Northeast PA. It's Wilkes-Barre is the dominant city there. Always goes Democrat, always went Democrat past tense. Barack Obama carried Luzerne County by 2,600 votes. And then Donald Trump won it by 26,000. That's the collapse we had in those PLM counties and the rest that are like it. The old Reagan number in 84, just to sing harmony for that, Reagan got up to about an 8,000 vote reelect, which was the old Republican all-time record. And Trump, you know, blew that away by almost 20,000 votes. So if the Dems don't get into the business of trimming the margin places like that, which, by the way, they're not the most woke places in the world, but welcome to the general election. Um, they're they're going to run San Francisco in a, another 5% up, and the popular vote may look pretty good, but in the College of Electricians, as we say in Detroit, uh, there ain't going to be no electricity. That's exactly right. Great idea, Mike. Well, Paul Begala, anything you're plugging, anything we can help you with? I know we can see on CNN there are some books on Amazon to fill your local Democratic friend's Christmas stocking. It's really great to have you on the podcast here, and thanks for pitching in for Axe, who, of course, will be back next week. I cannot wait to see Axe, and uh, I, I bought him a new thong for that Brazilian butt that he's going to have when this thing is when he's back from his vacation. <laughs> I'm sure he'll cherish it. But thanks again for coming on our podcast and adding a lot today to Hacks on Tap. Murph, this is great. Thanks. I, I, I love hearing you and X uh, on this thing every week. Uh, I, I listen to it while I'm jogging so that the sweat doesn't show quite so much because every time I think about this election, I start to sweat. But you and X are going to get me through it. <laughs> All right. With that vivid image for uh, our listeners' dream journals, I'm going to end with the obligatory plug. If you like what you're hearing or if you don't, go on and rate us on iTunes. Write down what you think. Those written reviews are worth a lot. They outbid Putin and they trick the algorithm into sharing the podcast with more people. We're in the business of trying to gain an audience here because people who've heard it seem to like it. We just want to get the word out. So any rating you can give us on iTunes or any of the podcast platforms, we are on all of them, would be much appreciated. And again, on behalf of my podcasting partner, David Axelrod, and I, thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week.